I reject your doubt and substitute my own. Welcome, Mere Mortalites, to another round of the book reviews. My name is Karen, host of the Mere Mortals podcast, but also this one where I dive deeper into the books that I'm reading to give you the juicy information within to extract some themes you might not have realized and also to do a bit of meta-analysis on the book itself. Indeed, we do have Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway with the subtitle, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Climate Change. So this book was published in 2010 and it's about 300 pages in length. Took me probably about eight hours to get through in total. 375 if you include all of the notes and associated links right at the end. It is a historical recount of the scientific debate regarding the effects of smoking, of the DDT insecticide, of chlorofluorocarbons and of burning fossil fuels into the atmosphere and what will happen from that. So what will happen from that? Well, we see that obviously with smoking, it has a lot of health issues, particularly lung cancer. We saw with the DDT insecticide, there was eco damage, the ozone hole, acid rain, global warming, the list goes on and on. And basically the book is talking about how there was a select group of individuals who really tried to see doubt about the scientific validity of what was actually happening from the kind of cause and effect and really trying to throw doubt into that, make the public unawares or uncertain if this was true or not. And they were backed by big money. And so we can see, oh, there was a real incentive for them to be doing this. Within this book, as it is a historical account, you will not find data, you will not find graphs or charts. I think I saw one graph in there in total. Uh, but there is plenty of sources at the end and it's told in a mostly neutral tone, although that shifts slightly towards the end of the book and we'll, we'll talk more about that as we get into this. Who were the authors? Well, Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway are both historians of science. They're both academics with PhDs and it really shows in the way the, the book has been written and also the way that the book is presented. Let's jump onto the first theme, which is merchants, buyers and sellers of commodities for profit. So who were these merchants of, of doubt and how did they go about selling their product, which actually was doubt? That is what they were kind of getting paid to do. I don't think it's actually worth naming the kind of people in here. There were prominent scientists for sure, and there was about five or six of them, which this book repeatedly named, and we could see them popping up across these various different topics over a span, I would say, of about three decades. I find it somewhat irrelevant, and I think it's more important to go about how were they doing this, and and we'll get onto the why in a little bit. So I'm going to jump here onto page 166, and this talks about how they're actually doing it. So suppressing evidence, misrepresenting what their colleagues had done and said, taking quotes out of context, making allegations that were unsupported by evidence. One claim in particular was repeated several times in the Forrest report on secondhand smoke, that of a prominent epidemiologist who had allegedly said of the EPA work, yes, it's rotten science, but it's in a worthy cause. Did anyone ever actually say that? Maybe yes, maybe no. There's no way to tell because it was given without attribution. So these were the kind of the sneaky things that these scientists were doing to try and contradict the weight of evidence that was against lung cancer and smoking and, and things like this. They would try and obf obfuscate what the actual real problem was. They would ask 
questions in the media which were designed to be somewhat hard to to actually know if it was true or not it was they were really trying to create this doubt this uncertainty as to whether there actually was a strong link between let's in this case take the uh, use of smoking and also of the rise in, in lung cancer so we see on page 18 this was some of the questions that they would be asking why do cancer rates vary greatly between cities even when smoking rates are similar do other environmental changes such as increased air pollution correlate with lung cancer? Why is the recent rise in lung cancer greatest in men, even though the rise in cigarette use was greatest in women? And then it goes on to say, none of the questions was illegitimate, but they were all disingenuous because the answers were known. So for example, why even though more women were starting to smoke was the lung cancer rates rise greatest in men is because there's an offset and because it takes a long time for the cancer to actually show so all these women who were now starting to smoke more they you wouldn't see that for another decades at least so we can really see okay they're starting to do some like dodgy little things here and how they were doing this was because they were pretty decent marketers they actually knew how to get into newspapers they knew what type of uh, things that people would pay attention to they knew what what type of language to use they would kind of use some of the laws in the US, and this is pretty much a, all a US-dominated book. They would use some of the laws to say, no, there needs to be fair debate, which was originally from some of the radio station laws, I believe, because with radio stations, there was only three or four of them, and so they actually had to give equal airtime to opposite sides of a political issue or a debate. And they were kind of using this in a in a way with newspapers to say, no, you, sh you have to kind of give us equal time as well to present the opposite side of this, even if it wasn't necessarily worthy of, of an actual debate. They would also use their power as well. A lot of these scientists were these people who were very prominent due to their work as uh, nuclear physicists or people like that during the Cold War era and who were very critical in, in making that atomic bomb, for example, which gave a lot of power to the US. And so they were, they were kind of high, highly established because of their expertise in an in a area which wasn't necessarily related to the environment or to smoking or to insecticides and things like this. So why? Well, this is where we start to get more subjective. Why were these merchants sowing this doubt? And this is a classic tale of this book. It goes from, I think, rather rigorous to a lot more subjective uh, as we go on to it. So money was a uh, one of the reasons we could see that there actually was backing the industry groups like Philip Morris, these big smoking tobacco companies. They would pay to get science done and the, and the science was was valid but it was also heavily slanted to to kind of prove things they would pay for studies of how lung cancer could perhaps be explained by more particulates in the air so it's not necessarily related it's kind of just trying to obfuscate trying to bring up this doubt uh, there was cold war ideology it was these a lot of these scientists these particular ones who were fighting against the the mainstream narrative or the mainstream science i guess you'd call it they were the ones who were very much of this Cold War ideology and this had to do with markets and regulations and they thought the, the you know, environmentalists, they were the, the new communists. Uh, there was a, they're they're kind of like watermelons. They're green on the outside but red on the inside. I kind of like that analogy. I thought that was pretty funny. 
uh, political motivations. They were doing this because they wanted uh, to rise up the ranks in the you know U.S. establishment. They wanted access to get to the president and even things like perhaps they were smokers themselves and they just wanted to deny the discomfort of of having to quit smoking. Many, many reasons as to why they were doing this. Are very hard to prove any of them as, as to what exactly their motivations were. But what's the outcome of all of this? What actually happened from these these merchants who were buying and selling doubt and, and really trying to throw shade onto what the mainstream, and when I say mainstream, I mean the the weight of the the scientific community was behind. In this case, we'll, we'll just take the 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 scientific community saying yes, there is a very strong link between lung cancer and uh, smoking, and there is a causal relationship from that. If you smoke, you will have a much more greater likelihood of getting lung cancer. Well, things got delayed. That was basically the main outcome from this. In the case of the smoking, this is where you can say, okay, this was really, really unethical because the the scientific, uh, the reports internal reports within the smoking companies and tobacco companies, I should say, they knew that there was a, a, a causal link between these two things, smoking and lung cancer. And they, they kind of knew there's, there's, there actually wasn't any doubt. It was pretty much proved. And so they, their internal reports were all related to, okay, how can we throw doubt into the public mind as to whether it actually is true? Because they obviously don't want their, to go out of business. They want to keep selling cigarettes. And this is where you can say, okay, that's, that's really messed up because that is actually killing people. That is actually causing a great amount of harm. When it gets into the other aspects related to the ozone, related to the environment where it's not harming anyone particularly, that's where it gets a little bit more iffy. And and they even mention this in the book itself. So in the summary for chapter three, which is on page 106, if the US government had established a strong regulatory regime on acid emissions, then the industry might have done more to innovate. I'm, I'm emphasizing a couple of words here. And if technological uh, advancement had made it easier and cheaper to control emissions than industrial resistance to tightening the caps as time went on would have lessened. And it might well have been easier to tighten the regulations over time, giving the forest the protection that science showed they really needed. This is admittedly speculative. We will never know what would have happened had a different approach been taken. However, one thing we do know for sure is that doubt mongering about acid rain, like doubt mongering about tobacco, led to delay and that was a lesson that many people took to heart. So even in this case, we say, okay, the acid rain, was it killing people? No. Was it damaging the environment? Yes. What did this delay do? Did it really have these huge impacts across the world? I mean, here we are, what, 40 years later after this, maybe even more, 60. Uh, was was this acid rain still detrimental to this day. I don't hear about it. Maybe it was, maybe there are ecological studies showing this, but we can really see, okay, there was all, the main thing that came from this was delay. In the case of the smoking, I think that's really, really unethical. And and I'm pretty sure a lot of people got sued for that, the tobacco companies. And I think some people face jail time. They, They didn't mention any of that in this book. But with the acid rain, with the ozone hole, with global warming, 
uh, with the DDT insecticide and, and the ecological damage that was doing, I would, I would kind of say that there was no real big outcomes from that. At least that was my impression from, from reading this book, which is kind of getting us into the iffy, the doubtful side of things, doubt, uncertainty, distrust, and hesitation. So that is our second theme. Doubt really seems to be a mental state and it's kind of between belief and disbelief, getting to the paradox of life. You very much know how I like talking about paradox in, in these book reviews. So what we see from this book is that the scientists themselves admit there is no certainty. You can never be 100% certain on anything. I think we all somewhat accept this in the legal system. You know, you have to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. And what is reasonable? Well, reasonable is not the same as certain. It's not the same as 100%. How can you try and find this out in this case? Well, this book argues that the that it should be about the weighting, it should be about peer review, it should be about the scientific method, and these are the things that are most important. And I would, by and large, agree with that. Uh, but how to decide? And I've got some rules of thumbs that I've actually created from from reading this book that I think are useful in determining if you've got some information coming in from conflicting sources and, and, and they're opposing each other and they're doubtful and, and it's creating doubt, which you should kind of side with or how you can filter these out. I've, that will be coming up in the observations and takeaways, but you you basically need to choose eventually. And jumping onto page 265 here, there was an interesting aspect which uh, relates to these actual book reviews. So here we go. These attacks have had a chilling effect. At a recent conference, a colleague told one of us in the that in IPCC discussions, some scientists have been reluctant to make strong claims about the scientific evidence, lest contrarians attack us. Another said, said that she'd rather err on the side of conservatism in her estimates because she feels more secure. Biologist Carrie Fogg has described how many Danish scientists gave up trying to correct the many false claims propagated by Bjorn Lomborg because they did not wish to be subject to misrepresentations, uh, misrepresentations of their work and victims of vicious personal attacks, intimidation works. This is an interesting section because I've reviewed two of Bjorn Lomborg's books on this uh, channel before, that being Cool It and False Alarm. And I thought those books were relatively reasonable. He showed a lot of data in that to support up his claims. He was not de denying global warming. He admitted, yes, global warming is happening. And his his um, thesis was, what should we do about it? We, we don't need to go too crazy and you know enact things like the Kyoto Protocol. We should be able to like take our time. There will be technological innovations. The modeling of these sorts of things far out into the future are not so great. And we've kind of seen this with claims about population in the past and how you know overpopulation would lead to all of us uh, mass starvation. That never happened. About how sea levels would be rising. That never happened. Um, before global warming, it was actually global cooling for a period. We're going to go into an ice age and it's humans' faults. There's all these sorts of things. And this is where it's go. I go like, well, well, who should I read? Who should I believe? This is so hard. This book is is claiming, and it had uh, in, in this particular section, it was saying um, not just this one, but a couple of others that Bjorn Lomborg was one of these scientists who was throwing doubt. They didn't accuse him of of having industry backing per se. Well, actually they did, yeah, um, but not, not to, to the extent that, some of these other ones were who 
who did show up across multiple avenues. Um, Bjorn Lomborg, as far as I know, uh, was really only uh, related to the global warming and perhaps a little bit about the DDT and sector side. But once again, it's kind of like, well, I've, I've read this guy's stuff. I've found it relatively convincing. I've read this book. It's also kind of convincing, but then this is getting into my own doubt, which was, unfortunately, this book really strays into other things. When I, uh, <laughs> when I was getting towards the end section, I'm like, wait, this isn't really about doubt anymore. This is getting into completely other topics. So going to the contents page here, we've got things like uh, in the conclusion of free speech and free markets. Okay, I'm not really sure what that has to do with um, the merchants of, of doubt. Uh, on the epilogue, it was a, a new view of science and then some of the uh, little mini chapters inside of here. Uh, do they have ones there? No, so for the other section, it was technophidism. There was one which was saying, can technology save us? Market fundamentalism and the Cold War legacy. None of this stuff had anything to do with what what the book was meant to be about. And so this is where I'm going like, well, okay, you know, their, their outcomes were regulation good, free market bad, uh, techno-optimism, i.e. things will be able to be solved in the future because technology and innovation will, will get us out of problems that are potentially looming. But that that's kind of bad and experts are good and experts are what we should believe in. And I was really just going like, okay, well, this is where my own doubt comes in. I reject your doubt and substitute my own. I'm kind of doubtful about a lot of what they were claiming towards the end is is good and is bad because it it really wasn't <laughs> it really wasn't anything to do with what I thought I would be reading about in this book, which was very much the case at the, at the start of it. So this gets me into my own observations and takeaways. Why was I I kind of doubtful towards the end? Well, a lot of it was because of their own methods in this book. Even if you just look on the front and back cover here, we've got featuring new forward by former Vice President Al Gore. Important and timely, we ignore this message at our peril. Elizabeth Colbert, author of The Sixth Extinction. On the back page of this, we have one, two, three, four, five, six different uh, reviews of, of people saying how it's a fascinating account, a very thorny problem. On the first couple of pages here, I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, probably close to like 15 to 20 reviews of this book. And it's like, well, are reviews of the book, is that what's meant to convince me of, of what's in here or, or should I actually read the thing? <laughs> uh, once again, I, I was reading through this and, and they were talking about you know the criticality of, of looking at the sources of of seeing where they're getting the information from. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I can kind of do that to a, a small extent at, at the very least. And what I saw was in this note section they have at the back, which goes for about 75 pages and they've probably got a total of, uh, there's got to be at least a thousand in here. We can see with this, okay, the notes when they're really talking about the how doubt was being thrown up about the scientific studies of smoking and of the ozone hole and of acid rain they've got decent sources in here from what i can tell that they're, they're they're mostly related to you know public journals of public health uh, social sciences and medicine that they're, they're referencing i suppose more uh, the rock, the rock solid kind of science sources 
When you get into the end section here, this is where it all becomes New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. And that's where I'm kind of going, okay, well, those are newspapers and those mainstream newspapers, what what do they really have to do with, with the science? You know, they kind of report on the science. Once again, it's it's kind of... I feel like they're doing a lot of what they, they're railing against in this book, which is creating bogeymen in, in the case of, in this case, it's these, these bad scientists who are trying to throw doubt on, on all of these various issues. They made a very convincing case at the start of that, but then towards the end, it's, it's getting towards, okay, there's a bit of hyperbolic language getting thrown in here. Some of this might be out of context. It's kind of hard to tell. I really was just going, well, their own methods in kind of presenting this book, it, it it wasn't reflective of, it was kind of like the uh, cat call, the pot calling the kettle black or something like that. You know, they're, they're railing against these people doing these dodgy things. And then, not that I'd call them dodgy per se, but I mean, this book's not scientific. It's not, it's not presenting data and graphs. It's, it's talking about how other people have been talking about data and graphs so yeah once again i'm kind of i'm kind of just iffy on on a lot of the conclusions that get towards the end here and (laughs) uh, one of the reasons from this is is because you can kind of see just how much politics is involved with with all of this Uh, jumping on to page 205 here so this is one of the reports that was being done by uh, I think it was the IPCC, uh, IPCC, which I'm not actually sure sure what it stands for. It's an international body, and they had, you know, you know delegates from uh, the Saudis were coming in, and then there was a delegate from uh, the Lone Kenyan, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Netherlands, Kuwait, Br- uh, United States, Britain, and basically they're, they're trying to create this report, and it's related to global warming, and so we get to this part here. A bit of a shouting match ensued and Hewton had to intervene, effectively tabling the issue while the working group finished negotiating the summary for policymakers. There, the entire issue boiled down to a single sentence. In fact, an, an adjective drawn from Santa's chapter. The balance of evidence suggests that there is a blank human influence on global climate. What should the adjective be? Santa and Weekly wanted appreciable. That was, this was unacceptable to the Saudi delegate, but it was too strong for Bert Boland too. One participant, participant recalls the group trying about 28 different words before Boland suggested discernible. That clicked, and the outcome of the Madrid meeting was this sentence. The balance of evidence suggests that there is a discernible human influence on global climate. <laughs> what the fuck? They're just arguing over this one word? Lordy, Jesus. That Yeah, that doesn't sound super scientific at all. And it's not meant to be. That That's about politics. But a lot of this book kind of gets into politics as well, which is straying away from what I thought was was actually meant to be talked about in this book. I thought this book was about how a handful of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco, tobacco smoke to climate change. And it did a decent job of that until about midway through and then it, and then it started getting onto other stuff. My last one here, so I talked about some rules of thumb. Well, what, what are the rules of thumbs that I've taken from this? And uh, funnily enough, a lot of these I think actually rule out this book in itself for <laughs> for how much weight I should put on it in terms of the outcomes of, of believing what it's saying, of taking to heart of, of things about free speech, about free markets, about regulation and, and things like this. So my own rules of thumb that I've I've gotten from this, 
in the context of trying to discern what is true when there is a debate or doubt being thrown about a scientific issue. So number one, look for the most dispassionate people using the least inflammatory language. Number two, add more weight to the historical red flags of the actors and their funding. So who are these people getting funded by? And would that funding influence them to talk about certain things? For example, they're highly, uh, they highly praise experts and scientific experts and you know they're, they're amazing and things like this. These two authors are, are funded by universities. They both have PhDs. They're going to be talking about why getting a PhD and being an expert and going to university is more powerful than, uh, say, a, a random person doing their own studies out in the wild or things like this. Number three, doubt is useful if it is due to conflicting statistical data, not if it is from a lack of data. So we saw this many times where these people who were arguing against uh, climate change or global warming or lung cancer or the ozone hole, they were bringing up doubt kind of from the lack of data, saying there's not enough data to prove this. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're not unsure about this. What is much more worthy of, of showing interest in and, and considering, oh, if there's two different studies and they're showing different things, well, okay, well, well, that actually is worthy of doubt. That is worthy of, okay, which, which of these is correct? Uh, hyperbole is a, so number four, hyperbole is, is a yellow flag. Everyone uses it for an extra oomph of persuasion. But for example, apparently Bjorn Lomborg called uh, Rachel Carson, who was the lady who really brought to attention this DDT insecticide and how it was causing harm, not to humans uh, per se, but more to the environment, um, accused her of being a mass murderer and guilty of genocide. Well, that's exceedingly silly. That That is... Uh, that's definitely a yellow flag for me against Bjorn Lomborg. On the other side, these people in the book were condemning a report for the radical recommendation to do nothing in the face of CO2 and global warming. That to me also seems rather unreasonable. I, I don't see anything particularly wrong with if there is if there is doubt or say there is something which you, you can actually see, oh, okay, global warming is happening. Does that necessarily mean we need to do something uh, immediately about it does this actually is this actually a problem or is this just a phenomena it, I, I don't think it's radical to say we're not going to do anything just right yet let's let's kind of see a little bit let's maybe wait a couple of years and see you know has the has the sea risen uh, three years and uh, three meters in the decade that you were claiming it was well no it hasn't so <laughs> maybe it was okay to not install dikes and to you know completely change our economy from fossil fuels at, at this very moment and the last one here equal distribution to start with but gradually choose a side but only on that particular topic i think that's the probably the best way so you know it's good that i've read this book and it's also good that i've read bjorn lomborg's book and i can kind of have a look at both of them and see oh, okay on global warming which which side should i kind of argue with or, or agree with or, or another person or another person the point is I think you it's good to start with an equal distribution of information coming in gradually pick a side and you're you're going to gradually go into one camp because you'll find some evidence convincing the trick is to not let that then camp influence you into other things and so it should only be on that topic 
if you now encounter a new topic such as the efficacy of wearing masks, for example, uh, as we happened as happened with with COVID in these last couple of years, <laughs> none of your decisions based on uh, is global warming a thing? Do we need to do something about it right now? That should have nothing to do with your investigation of the efficacy of masks. And the thing is, this is where it gets political and why I actually kind of dislike this book a bit because it got into political things. It was, it started to get into that. You've got to be on, if you're on this camp, this thing, uh, markets and regulations, bad and environment, good. And, and this thing here and this, and it, it just, it just got into this aspect where it, it felt unnecessary. And it also felt kind of a, a side topic, I was expecting to learn more about scientists throwing doubt and how they did this, and then you're talking about regulations. I'm, I'm, I don't see the link here, and that's cool if you want to talk about that, but do it in a separate book, not related to what your your subtitle is here. So, those are a couple of my regulations, and to be on uh, my own rules of thumbs, I should say, not regulations. And if I take those rules of thumb and I look at this book. I can't, it doesn't really pass <laughs> a lot of them. A lot of them actually go, oh, there's a bit of hyperbole here. You know, uh, the, the, their funding, what they care about, it's going to influence their decisions. Did they use the least inflammatory language? Not, not particularly. Um, yeah, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm very iffy. So getting onto my own summary, it started solid, but definitely slid into a opinion. I think it was quite useful when they stuck to the topic, this being the tagline, the subtitle. And I learned a fair bit about smoking, about the DDT and insecticide and global warming denial. I did learn about how people were denying these things, kind of the tactics that they would use, uh, why they would perhaps have some motivations for doing this. But then personally, I, I would only recommend reading really the first half, maybe even just the first third of this book. Because the second half, second and th uh, final thirds, uh, it becomes rather more subjective towards the end is what I would say. It becomes less about science and more about politics. So overall, I'm going to give Merchants of Doubt um, probably a four and a half out of ten. I think what you can learn from this is to learn to apply critical thinking and then apply that critical thinking to this book, I think is a, is a useful thing to take from this. And that is it for today, my mere mortalites. Thank you for joining me to the end of this audio. What are your thoughts on the Merchants of Doubt, on Naomi Oreskes, Eric M. Conway, about the ozone layer, about global warming, about all these things? Actually, I don't really care if it's kind of political let me know about the science. I'd love to know your thoughts on the scientific method and what this this book shows from that and, and on doubt and of trying to get through that uncertainty and how you particularly uh, decide on information and sources. Were my rules of thumb decent or not? The best way to do that is by sending in a boostergram. So that is a message that comes directly to me, the podcaster, with a show of support with that, in this case being a sum of money. You can do this within the actual podcasting app itself if you have a decent one. And I would recommend just trying out a new app because you do get a lot of features that you won't find in what you're likely listening to. So if you are on Spotify, if you are on Apple, you're not going to be seeing pictures showing up on your screen as I'm talking. You're not going to be seeing links. You won't have access to the transcript. If you go onto a better app, so newpodcastapps.com, 
and choose one from there. I would recommend Fountain, Podverse, Podfans, Customatic, a lot of different ones that you can choose from. You actually do get a better experience and you can help to support the show at the the same time. So I I would recommend just doing that. If you want to know more, go out to meremortalspodcast.com slash support. And um, yeah, I would really appreciate that. And I I get your messages and I read them out at the end of month book review. So cool. There's a lot there, (laughs) a lot there. Thank you very much for, for joining to the very end of this audio. I really do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. Kyron, out.